What's the best site in India? The Taj Mahal, the Golden Temple? For Rintwa, it's his market stall. Some years ago, he lost his sight and then his job. I'm Lisa from Specsavers and we help the Hope Foundation provide eye care in Kolkata. Rintwa was found to have cataracts. The charity performed surgery, which gave him his vision back. He regained confidence and returned to work. Find out how we're changing people's lives for the better at specsavers.ie. Hello, I'm Connor Faulkner and this is Driving Life. Welcome to episode 28, where I chat with Green Party MEP for Dublin, Kieran Cuff. He's a familiar sparring partner for me over the years. We've often been pitted against each other on radio or TV, but there's much more to him than that. So thankfully, we're not having a row this time. Instead, we have a longer chat about Europe and his work in Brussels, his take on things back home and what his future plans might be. But before we pop round to him, I'd like to take a moment to say a big thank you to our sponsors, to Specsavers, to Doro Mobile Phones and to Expressway Buses. Three great companies in three very different areas. They're very good to support us, so thank you very much. Don't forget to check out earlier episodes and other chats. It's all there on seniortimes.ie or wherever you get your podcasts. But now, Kieran. He joined me by Zoom from his Brussels office and here's how we got on. Hello, Kieran Cuff. How are you keeping over there in Brussels? Not bad at all, Connor. And uh, thanks for taking the time to catch up with me. Uh, it's obviously it's a busy time here in Brussels. A lot of legislation going through the works, uh, but it's nice to take some time out for that and catch up for a chat with you. It is, and it is good. To, it is good to catch up, you and I, because I mean, too often when we're in conversation, it's a Punch and Judy show on, uh, you know, hosted by a radio host, pitting us against each other on whatever, usually something to do with cars and towns or climate or something of that ilk. But you're much more interesting than that. Um, obviously, you're in Brussels as an MEP. We, 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 we'll come to that. But you're very well known uh, in the Green Party. Tell me a little bit about what brought you there. You're you're a dub. Your father was an architect. You grew up in that sort of student generation. Why politics, Kieran? Why politics? Good question. Um, yeah, um, I used to say that I became quite politicised in college, um, and there was a group of us called Students Against the Destruction of Dublin, I and we that, campaigned yeah. in favour of a living city, um, in favour of public transport, and holding on to buildings that were being demolished, often to facilitate road widening in Dublin. But it more recently, big banners on buildings. That was part of it, wasn't it? Absolutely right. I, yeah. I, and between lampposts outside City Hall, and that brought me into City Hall. But thinking back, actually, I think my politicization came much earlier. And this year is the 50th anniversary of uh, a United Nations conference that took place in Stockholm in 1972. And it was one of the first global gatherings of people concerned about the state of the planet, uh, about yeah. pollution and about the environment. And actually, my own father went to that conference um, as part of the Irish delegation. And he was speaking there about the plight of Irish travellers. Uh, mm. And himself and another guy went over and talked about the challenges and the problems that travellers faced in terms of life expectancy, housing and discrimination. And sadly, those issues are still there today. Yeah. But I think 
the stories he came back with from that gathering in Stockholm uh, about campaigners trying to save the earth. And remember, it was only around then that we saw those first pictures of the earth as a tiny blue globe uh, with those photographs that were taken from the Apollo program. Yeah, and the, I think the, for the, the famous me, Earth, yeah, the famous Earthrise program, uh, photograph. Exactly. And yeah. I guess for many people, that was an awakening of interest in the environment. And it certainly was for me from my father's stories uh, of yeah. that conference. And I think and then maybe a decade later, uh, when the Irish Green Party uh, was coming into being, I read an article by Michael Viney, who is still writing for the Irish Times on issues around nature. And he had decamped to the west of Ireland, uh, to Mayo, uh, to build a new life for himself and his family. And he wrote about the nascent Green Party at that time. And that provoked me to join um, around the same time as the first meeting was being held. Yeah, very good. And, and uh, you know, time has proved you right because and I think you're right to date the sort of the, the, the awakening environmental movement and in general environmental where I remember from my own teenage years, things like Greenpeace and stuff being part of the conversation um, and, and a, a growing sort of global awareness. So your timing was great or the Green Party's timing was great because initially it was treated with a bit of scorn in, in Irish society. Um, but but quickly as a party, it established credibility. You've been in government for six of the last 15 years. It's been it's been a very influential party and movement in Ireland, notwithstanding its relatively small size, Kieran, I think it has. Uh, and I think what we bring to the table uh, is a very issues-based focus. Uh, we, we, we like to talk about our policies more so than the personalities. Uh, and I think the Green parties around Europe have come of age uh, in recent times. The, the German Greens are riding high in the polls and they hold uh, several influential ministries in government. But at the moment, within the European Union, of the 27 countries, I think Greens are in government in perhaps seven of those countries. Right. In Finland, in Germany, in Austria, uh, Luxembourg, Belgium, Ireland. I, I think that that's around six or seven countries. Yeah. Um, we're not in the majority, but we are in government and we are... Uh, pushing policy and in many cases some successes yeah and you're also a chunky block in the european parliament and um, we are we're 10 percent of the parliament uh, connor yeah. so i work day every day with 70 colleagues out of the 705 meps uh, so we're 10 percent of the voting block and our votes sometimes count uh, and we get to sit at the table and make decisions I, I was going to ask what daily life is like uh, for, for, for an MEP, because a lot of people might be familiar with your, this, sometimes you post on social media on your, your travels back and forth to Brussels, and you literally do take a boat and train when you can. And, um, you know, you, you seem to be quite relaxed about it, get your bit of work done and post the odd photo. No, absolutely. Um, but, but mostly you're in Brussels. So, so what, what you know, what, what's, what's the day? What happens at nine in the morning and what are you up to? Yeah, well, um, Tomorrow morning will be will be a typical one in Brussels. I'm hosting uh, a breakfast meeting of a, a an organization that I'm the president of. It's called Euphores, the European Union Forum on Renewable Energy and Energy Fish Efficiency. And what right. we do is 
we they're bring it's a bit of a mouthful. Over there. <laughs> it's a bit of a mouthful, but many we're, we get used to the acronyms after a while in Brussels. But essentially, mm-hmm. we're uh, a, an interparliamentary body that get brings together MPs and MEPs to talk about energy, renewable energy, mm-hmm. and energy efficiency. And obviously, energy is very much in the focus at the moment. But as an yeah. organization, we've been around for about 25 years. And tomorrow morning, it's a breakfast meeting with what we call the incoming Swedish presidency of the European Council. As you may yes. know, as your listeners may know, every six months, the hand at the helm of the Council of Ministers uh, or of the European Council changes yeah. uh, with each, everybody getting a turn. So we go between the this 27 the member states. Yeah, this with the at rotating the presidency that uh, yeah, Ireland periodically holds and then everybody becomes aware of it. And then, you know, currently... Yeah, and we've had... Uh, we've, we have the Czech presidency at the moment. We had oh, yeah. a French presidency up to, till June of last year, but the baton is passed in January to Sweden. So they're going to tell us uh, tomorrow, the essentially the Swedish ambassador or permanent representative, as we call it, to the European Union, will t- tell us what's on their mind uh, about the next six months, what mm-hmm. laws they want to try and finalise, uh, what discussions they want to have and they will paint a picture of what's going to happen between January and June of next year Mm. and there's always a lot of balls in the air when it comes to legislation and I mean to in a sentence try and explain how the European institutions work the European Commission publishes a draft law and then the European Parliament and the Council of Ministers get to throw it around from one to the other and finally after a year or two years, we have a process called trialogues, where the three institutions, nice. the council, the parliament and the uh, commission sit in the room and sometimes burn the midnight oil to hammer out a deal on a piece of legislation that we've been discussing for years. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones. Make friends with innovation. Often there's kind of a false suggestion that there's something anti-democratic about European laws. And, you know, that was a part of the Brexit conversation in the UK. Um, but genuinely, when you follow it, 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 it's, it is a, it's a Byzantine process, but it's a transparent one. It's a fair one. It's a, you know, a democratic one. Maybe there's things you could panel beat. But, but as a, a, a way of collectively expressing the public opinion of the European population, I think it works reasonably well, Kieran, do you? I think it does. And I think the way politics works over here, we tend to gravitate towards the middle rather than the opposite edges. So if you look at the the, at Westminster uh, in the UK, it's generally one side shouting at the other side. And even in the Doyle, even though it's a semicircular layout, quite often you have government and opposition at loggerheads. But within the European Parliament, with every file, with every draft law, we don't have a government in opposition. We have yeah. to build a majority 
in the middle. We all need to get 51% of the parliament to to approve the file that we're working on. Which and, means and your, very your, 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 your role often then is to scrutinise and critique legislation that the Commission has initiated. Absolutely, but we also amend it and we can amend it quite considerably. So I'm going into trialogue next week on a, uh, well, sorry, in, in early December on a file around sustainable aviation fuel. So mm. um, I'd imagine almost all of your listeners fly, as do I, fairly regularly, mm. even though I, I, I try and do the sail rail journey when I can. So we're trying to make flying greener and move away from kerosene towards different fuels. Some of those yeah. fuels will be biofuels. Some of them will be synthetic aviation fuels. And mm. the kind of deal we'll hammer out at the trialogue is we're going to use some biofuels, but we want to phase them out because of competition with crops for food and crops that was, for fuel. That was, the big, that was the big lesson, Kieran, wasn't it, from the biofuels directive of about 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, which is a very well-intentioned piece of European legislation that didn't actually work. It did more to distort world food markets than it did completely. And, and some people will remember an image of an orangutan with a petrol pump pointing at its head <laughs> like, like a revolver. Um, yeah. So we've moved on, thankfully, to second, yeah. second and third generation biofuels. But there is concerns. For instance, one of the fuels we may use, we are using, is used cooking oil. But when you look at the numbers, there's much more used cooking oil coming into Europe than the regions that are sending it to us are actually producing. So clearly there's something um, yeah. murky going on there, um, yeah. whether it's using virgin palm oil or whether it's something else slipping into the mix, we need to make sure that we don't just rely on biofuels to fuel planes in the future. Yeah, I, you know, there has to there, there, there have to be better ways. I think one of the interesting things about this era in which we live during a climate crisis is there is a tremendous amount of innovation going on. Some of the technology coming through, I mean, solar beginning to be viable in places like Ireland or what we can achieve with wind. Um, it, it feels like too little too late when you look at some of the scale of the global problems but you know at the same time technology is saving us it's trying to save us as, the, as this crisis goes on no it is and and there is huge progress and every day and every meeting i go to the issue of climate action comes up i mean after that euphoria is breakfast I go into a Nordic corner meeting and that's where um, the Greens <laughs> we're, from... We're, we're now at about half ten in the morning. Is it meeting uh, we, we've got to nine o'clock, Connor, over here. So eight <laughs> o'clock is the is the, the euphoria. Nine o'clock is the Nordic corner where I sit down with um, colleagues from Finland, Sweden and Denmark. And uh, I'm honoured along with my colleague Grace O'Sullivan to sit down monthly with the Nordic Greens to discuss mm. what's going on, who's in government, who's not in government, What's the big row in Sweden this month? What's happening yeah. in Finland with forests? Have we defined sustainable forestry yet? All of these kind of issues come in the mix. But really what's important is it's a sharing of knowledge and of yeah. our experience in the European Parliament. And I love those kind of gatherings where you, you might have uh, a piece of, uh, uh, somebody might have brought along some pickled herring uh, and we might oh bring Lord. along uh, uh, a bit of Irish smoked salmon or something. <laughs> and over... Uh, a cup of coffee and a bite to eat, we tease out how Europe should go in uh, a direction that reflects what we want to achieve. 
Yeah, and, and I love the sort of progress by conversation and engagement, and as you say, gravitation towards the centre. And uh, you know, I do genuinely feel that European Union has been an example for that. And uh, a um, couple of things on on the EU before we leave that behind us. Firstly, Brexit is 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 Brexit still exercising the minds and thoughts of MEPs these days, or um, is there sort of an assumption from anybody who isn't Irish that look that's all resolved? Um, there's a sense that the European Union has moved on. And we've other fish to fry, like rule of law in Hungary or allowing Albania or Macedonia uh, into the European Union. And that's where a lot of the, the, the serious discussion is going on. But we do have a Brexit committee, a committee for relationships with the United K, with the United Kingdom. Uh, I sit as a what they call a substitute member on that. We mm -hmm. are trying to limit the damage from Brexit so it doesn't go away. And actually, just today, I was um, speaking at an event on fire safety and a dear colleague, uh, uh, Theresa Griffin, a former uh, mm. Labour Party MEP from the UK, she was over in Brussels and she was quite tearful because, mm. you know, she has spent her life in European politics. And essentially, yeah. even though she was a huge asset to the Parliament, when the UK left, she had to leave too, uh, yeah. two years ago. And she was such a loss. And I said today, it was such a loss of dear colleagues, brilliant people who contributed and believed in Europe and yet were shown the door by the UK's own government. So it is yeah. a real loss and Brexit is never far away from our discussions and from our thoughts. Yeah, well, you listen, hopefully, hopefully it's it's a cautionary tale for other countries these days, though, isn't it? And, and it had made the EU hang together a little tougher, I think. And the, the, the other big um issue is 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 the war in ukraine and um the eu's ongoing position there and um, you know we have our energy supply concerns uh, but also militarily what i was trying to tease my way towards kieran was um you know the greens while enthusiastic europeans have always in ireland been enthusiastically neutral militarily neutral and um, any change to that perspective when faced by things like um, Putin's aggression, um, no, no, there are, and there are, there are shades of green in the European Parliament and the government, the German government, um, with the Greens in power, have have strongly supported and given uh, weapons to Ukraine. From an Irish perspective, uh, we still support our neutral status, so Ireland is not giving weapons, but we are helping. Uh, with training for minesweepers. We are helping with medical equipment. And I think in the face of the thuggery and murderous um, actions of the Russian state led by Vladimir Putin, I, I think we have to give help to Ukraine. And certainly it gives me pause for thought. Mm. I still believe we should retain our status as a neutral country, but certainly in the European Parliament, we have voted for assistance uh, to Ukraine and Grace O'Sullivan and I have given that support. But we do want to ensure that we move towards uh, peacekeeping in the longer term. And thankfully, uh, the Ukrainian um, government has been successful uh, with help from the West. Uh, and I think we do want uh, a, a world where borders are respected and Russia has not done that since 2014. Some would argue earlier, uh, and I think we have to be supportive of Ukraine. You know, Connor, I yeah. was in the bank earlier today, and the woman I was dealing with 
I, I said, your, your surname sounds Polish. She said, I'm Ukrainian. And then she smiled and said, I'm from Kherson. Kherson, oh, the wow, city yeah. that has been, Just been wrenched back yeah. from Russia in the last few weeks. And again, she was almost in tears as well. She said her grandmother has come to stay with her. Her grandmother's cat is with her. And, <laughs> you know, often in Ireland, even though we have accepted 65, 61,000 Ukrainians over the last nine months, it, it, we we often are insulated from the reality of war. And it mm. was just, it certainly tugged at my heartstrings to have a woman just saying, I never thought my city would be in the news internationally. Mm. Uh, particularly in the way it has been. So uh, yeah. this brought the reality home of war in Ukraine. Yeah, we're very, very lucky really in Ireland. I mean, militarily, we're very lucky in a sense that we're snuggled in between the UK and France and the United States. We don't need to defend ourselves. We can discuss it academically. Um, and, you know, maybe maybe we should stand up and do more, maybe with an obligation to do a little bit more. Uh, but maybe on the other hand, it gives us a slightly unique voice and uh, maybe a useful I, I, one today. Yeah, I think we need to find out more and listen more to the lived experience of people living um, against a backdrop of horror. And yeah. obviously we were quite insulated uh, within World War II, within the emergency but I was just rereading some of my great uncle's um, uh, uh, accounts of World War One. He was he worked for British military intelligence, uh, and he was exposed to the horror of war. Uh, you know, in in those early years of the last century, when a revolution was taking place in Ireland, but there was a war raging across the continent, and his loyalties were very torn uh, between the British Army uh, and the new. Uh, Irish uh, government. And I think we reading through his memories reminds me of the importance of understanding conflict, understanding violence. And so many Irish people have served uh, both in the Irish, but also in the UK army. Uh, and I think as I mean, Kevin Myers would talk a lot about this, but I, yeah, I, I think we have to realise that um, a lot of Irish people have served in the British Army, and we need to recognise that and compliment them for their work over the yeah. years. You know, I think as a as a country, Kieran, we've come an awful long way um, since you and I were students. You're a little older than me, not much in it, but um, you know, the last thirty years or so in 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 Irish life has seen so many things transformed. Um, I, per personally, I think it's fantastic. It feels like a much more grown up country now, much better in so many ways. And even dear old Dublin that, um, you know, you were defending in the early 1980s. Uh, I mean, Dublin city centre in the 1980s was a grim, grim place. It's it's transformed wonderfully. But I, I, I think a couple of the rows we were having back then, the first was about the importance of public transport. And mm. the second was about the the value of heritage and older buildings. I think yeah. we have won those discussions and debates and really the the discussions that we have now are more about, well, look, do we put in this bus lane? How do we strike a balance between the car and public transport? How yeah. do we make it safer to cycle in Dublin? But Dublin has changed beyond recognition. And I do remember a conversation from the mid 80s saying, look, what is going to happen to Dublin? Will it go down the path of those American cities? where we gutted the city centre in order to accommodate the car, or it will, will it look to a European model where we actually have 
tens of thousands of people living in the city centre. We're improving the air quality. We're improving the amenities. We're planting trees. And thankfully, I think we've gone for the latter, even though we still do have rows and points of difference. Well, you know, um, we're, we're an awful lot better than some parts of the US. And I'm not to look down at the US, but I mean, it, I, I was looking at, online at an aerial photo contrasting two stadia. One, I think, was the Bernabeu in Madrid and the other was a stadium in the US. But the US one with the same footprint had acres and acres and acres of car parking around it. It, it just looked ridiculous. We've it's done better than that. Ireland, it's extraordinary. I remember being in New York and going to the Meadowlands and it was a stadium surrounded by car park. And even though we had huge rows about the redevelopment of Lansdowne Road, the Aviva Stadium and Croke Park, thankfully, we kept Stadia close to our city centres. So, I mean, the enjoyment of a match is really increased by going for a drink with your mates uh, in a bar nearby, walking through streets where people uh, look out the door and wave at you. Uh, And that is part of city life. And it's something that is so important. And you know, yeah. I, I, I've, I've spent quite a bit of time in the States. I, I actually cycled across the United States many years ago. Oh, wow. Uh, that would in But <laughs> one of the things I saw there was so many cities that had simply bent over backwards to the car. The downtown had been destroyed. Mm. You had a couple of high-rise office blocks, maybe a few multi-story car parks. If you were lucky, you had an entertainment zone uh, in, in cities yeah. like Nashville, where people would go at night. But the city, the, the the city that you see in old black and white photographs from 1900 had been surrendered uh, to to uh, transport, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, big, error, big errors in hindsight. We didn't do the same things in Dublin. Maybe we would have done if we had the money at the time. Maybe we were spared horrific motorways on stilts through the city centre in the 60s and 70s because we didn't have the money to build them. They were doing that in some of their places. The, the plans were there, Connor, and there are, there are yeah. photo montages showing underpasses and overpasses yeah. at Christchurch and down at um, uh, St. Paul's Church on on the Keys. So I I think we dodged that bullet, Connor. Yeah, and an enormous bus garage where Temple Bar now is and all sorts of other uh, uh, planning areas. Thankfully, we didn't do that. One thing that does strike me in Dublin city centre these days, uh, Kieran. I know you're in Dublin a bit, even though you're, you're because you're, you're a dog, Oh, I spent about half my time in Dublin, about, about, half, about, yeah. about a third in Brussels, and then between Strasbourg and uh, conferences elsewhere, I, I, I'm often in motion, but um, <laughs> my heart and about half my time is in Dublin City. Yeah, very good. Well, I'll tell you, one of the things that strikes me about Dublin post-pandemic, and maybe this will be a good thing in the long run, but it's definitely a shift in pattern. There are fewer people in the offices, particularly on Fridays, because of the, 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 the mix of online working. Now, that's great in many ways but it really takes the buzz out of the city centre. Um, and, I, you know, to me, it shows how the, the paucity of people who actually live in Dublin city centre, uh, because pre-pandemic, it would be full of vibrant life on a Friday afternoon. But actually, the ones who weren't office workers were tourists. So, you know, what, what do we do to get people back living in our cities? I think uh, eventually we will, uh, and in, in some instances it's actually happening, we're converting some office blocks into housing and mm-hmm. we are living through the middle of a housing crisis um, and we have to provide housing for young people. So I think we do need to convert some offices into housing. Uh, I think we will see 
a lot more high density development in the center, which will help with footfall. Mm-hmm. Of people living in, um, you know, I think there are places where high rise. Yeah, there are places where high rise is appropriate, particularly if you're close to uh, a railway station or a Lewis line or even a high quality bus corridor. But I think we should never confuse high rise with high density. And really, amongst urban planners, amongst architects, the talk is about increasing the density rather than the height. By that, I mean looking at cities like. Paris, like Rome, uh, like even most of Brussels, where the average building height in the centre is six floors. And that's yeah. a good height where you get the density. Uh, and I think we'll see more of that. It's also a good bit taller than Dublin, because e- e- even where European cities are low rise, they tend to be higher rise than Dublin. Dublin is very low rise, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the three-storey typical older buildings are being replaced. Uh, I think six floors is a happy medium. Uh, I'm not, I don't think everything should be walloped and replaced with the tall building. Uh, I think we need good planning. Uh, and that usually means a master plan that goes beyond the colors on a, a dense, a, a zoning map uh, mm. that paints a little bit more of a picture of what the buildings will look like. And in some yeah. parts of the Docklands, we did that right around Grand Canal Square, where we have uh, some yeah. fascinating new uh, apartments, a theater offices, hotels, it works quite well. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful part of the city. Um, and of course, you know, you you actually teach a master's course in, in um, urban design and urban regeneration, don't you? So you, you're, you're, yeah. you're, steep, you're, you're steeped in it. Um, and you're a dub, as you pointed out to me, half your time is still in Dublin. Um, what next for you, Kieran? Because you're an enthusiastic MEP currently, but and you topped the poll in 2019, so you know you can never be complacent. I would not, but you could confidently run again and do another five years in Brussels. Uh, do you think you would do that, or is your preference to come back, perhaps, to national politics here? I I, I would love to run again in Europe. Um, I really enjoy the four-dimensional chess of European politics, where. Um, Firstly, you engage in the centre, you meet in the middle. Uh, so one day I might be meeting um, Marian Marinescu, uh, uh, EPP, uh, a right-wing uh, MEP from Romania, having a chat about um, the rest times for lorry drivers. Another day I might, might be working on the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive with colleagues from, um, you know, Svetlina Pankova from Bulgaria or um, Morten Peterson from Denmark. It does. It does sound like a you know a fascinating life. But on the other hand, if the sliding door slid the other way, you could find yourself minister for the environment in Dublin. Um, and surely a, a large part of you would like to carry that baton. Look, I, I I'd love to do that, but I mean, it wouldn't necessarily offer itself to me. Uh, yeah, but it might, Kieran. It might. And <laughs> I I think ultimately, Connor, I enjoy moving the big things that I work on in Europe small distances, as opposed to, let's say, the small things, long distances on Dublin City Council, or the medium-sized things, medium distances in Doyle Aaron. Um, I do enjoy the European challenge. I love the way that Europe uh, has provided um, a democratic future for so many people. I love going to countries like Albania, where people really want to join the European Union and listening to what they see Europe as a place of transparency, democracy and hope. And um, I guess I do believe in Europe. 
warts and all. Some days mm-hmm. it's challenging, it's problematic. There are issues around defence, there are issues around human rights. But on balance, I think it's much better being in Europe than being outside it. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. And, you know, as proved every day, <laughs> proved every day these days by the neighbours in the UK, um, so, so Europe for the for, for the time being, and presumably that means a, a re-election attempt in two years' time. I absolutely um, hope to run for re-election, and uh, with if I get the support uh, from the people of Dublin, I'd be I'd be humbled and honoured to to serve another five-year term. And tell me this: if when when you go back, do you ever get frustrated by uh, some of the other Irish delegates, uh, Mick Wallace and Claire Daly, for example, um, and some of the commentary they've come out with? Because you know they're seen globally as Irish MEPs. Um, does do you know? Do you, do you think we're getting the right sort of quality of MEP candidates coming out? I, of- I think um, if my colleagues run for re-election, the 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 voting public will have a chance to decide on what kind of representation they want in Europe. And certainly I take huge pride in working on legislation. Uh, You know, I have files here uh, as thick as my uh, hand on amendments and then what we call compromises, where I try and bring people together to find a compromise that isn't everything I want, but that represents progress. And other MEPs have other other things that they want to do or talk about in Europe. And I let them do what they do. But certainly my heart is in the legislation, in getting laws across the line that will improve the quality of life and make it easy for people, whether they be in Ireland or Finland, to deal with the high energy prices, the the, mm. the kind of the ESB bill at the end of the month or the energy bill, things like that make me want to jump out of bed in the morning and get to work. And I think that's what's really important in Europe. Okay. Um, and listen, imagine you're working away in Europe then in a few years' time and uh, you, 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 you become aware that the Irish government announces the construction of a nuclear power plant in Carnesore Point or somewhere else uh, as, as you know, part, part, of, part of the climate contribution because uh, nuclear is what nuclear is. Would your position be what would your view on that be i know historically yeah i mean my view in the current crisis is is that if we have a nuclear plant that is safe and functioning well i certainly wouldn't close it this autumn or in the next couple of years but i think we can provide a just transition without relying on nuclear energy uh, in the coming years Uh, i still have huge concerns about the storage of waste. And you know, I mean, over the years, Connor, since I was campaigning with CND in the 80s, my opposition to nuclear has reduced and reduced. But then when I saw nuclear power stations in Ukraine being shelled, I kind of went, oops. And I had this realization that nuclear power stations can be weaponized in a time of war. And you can say what you like about a wind turbine, but if you fire a shot at one, it won't take out half a million people. Um, yeah. So, um, so too, I, too, I many, too many downsides. For, yeah, too many, too many downsides and too many reservations for you to think it good policy. I, I think for there's Ireland, a lot. I think yeah. there's a lot, and also most of the fuel comes from either Russia or Kazakhstan, and a lot of the technology does as well. So there, there's a range of concerns I'd have. But as I said at the outset. 
I, I wouldn't be in a rush to to shut down a safe nuclear power station at the moment, but I don't have enormous uh, faith in it as a technology. I've been to Windscale, Sellafield. I've been yeah. to Wilva in Wales, which has now shut. And I remain concerned about the kind of the too big to fail mentality that mm. permeates the nuclear industry, where they feel they're doing the right thing regardless of how they get there. Yeah, and when a big giant entity like that just says, trust us, you're immediately nervous, aren't you? Um, I, am, I am a bit, but I mean, at the moment, I'm talking a lot about energy efficiency, which means mm -hmm. getting buildings up to an A energy rating. I'm talking about renewables and wind and uh, photovoltaics will be a success story for Ireland in the coming years as well. So uh, with all of that into the mix and uh, trying to forget briefly that we have a war going on as well as a climate emergency, in the broadest sense, are you optimistic for, for, for where we're going on the globe? I, I think in the world of politics, Connor, we trade in hope. Uh, okay. And despite the, the concerns I would have about the climate emergency or climate breakdown, I think that young people in particular, and many older people, realize that we need to take action, not just through our governments, but in our daily lives, in how we get around, in the energy we use, in the buildings that we live in, in the food we eat. And I do feel a certain sense of optimism about what we can achieve. I don't think we'll find the success at COP27 in Egypt. Uh, I don't think we'll find it in any one piece of legislation in Europe or at home. But I think a combination of individual and community action, as well as local authority, national governments and Euro European and, and global level actions, between all of them, I think we'll find a pathway forward that hopefully will give us a planet that is livable uh, in for our children and our children's children. Well, that is a that is a hopeful thought, a hopeful thought on which to wrap. And um, Kieran, you're very good, a, a, a committed politician, conviction politician, if ever there was one. You've been, uh, um, you know, pl plowing that furrow sometimes lonely for 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 literally forty years now. Certainly for as long as I've been engaged with you. Uh, so it's it's, yeah. it's great to sit down for a longer chat. Kieran, uh, thank you very much. Likewise, and thank you, Connor. So that's Kieran Cuff. I hope you enjoyed the chat. Do remember that you can access the full Driving Life archive of previous episodes at seniortimes.ie. In the meantime, drive safely, live happily and come back and see us again. Why have regular eye tests at Specsavers? Well, they can help reveal health issues like diabetes and high blood pressure. Book an appointment online today.